As the uh, bumper introduced, that uh, Jeremy's uh, starting a new series called Work is Worship. And I get to kick that off today, and I'm probably going to step on his toes a little bit on future uh, sermons that he has for his topics, but that's okay. That's the uh, privilege you get when you get to go first. So, um, um, But my, my topic today is saints in the workplace, and, um, and I, I want to introduce that, um, going to the next slide, that your, your occupation is a calling, okay? It's a calling from God. There's someone God made you to be. Something very specific he created you to do. But I know some of you are thinking, really? I don't know. I know that God calls people to church stuff, but I'm a chemist. I'm a nurse. I'm a plumber. How's that a calling from God? I mean, we know God loves us because Jeremy keeps telling us that. And more, if we're honest, and and he tells us more, um, but, but if we're honest, we don't really believe God is all that interested in what we do for work. So we get, up and what, we get caught up in what authors call the sacred and secular divide. And I was really gonna use that as my topic today, bridging the sacred-secular divide. But I was on about my ninth flight of the last two weeks the other day, and I was watching these people get on this plane. Most of us were working. It was during the middle of the week, and they didn't look like they were worshiping at work. You know, flying's not as easy as it used to be, but it's a lot better than it was just a little bit ago. But it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, to get places and do things. And I saw these people, and they didn't look like they were worshiping. And I said, what does my demeanor show? How much do I look at my job as, as, a, as a, a calling, as a blessing? So, I, I, so God changed my message, and that's where we're going today. The sacred, sacred secular divide says our spiritual life involves church, men's group, Bible study, Sunday school, and our non-spiritual life is everything else. And we're gonna look at the everything else through this series, our rest and things like that and our recreation. But as far as work goes, let's focus on that today, your job. Do you know there's no word in the, in the, um, for spiritual in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language? In the Hebrew language, there's no word for spiritual. Because in the Hebrew worldview, all of life is spiritual. And then when you get to the New Testament, the word spiritual is really only used by Paul in his writings, and it means animated by the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, remember, he's a Hebrew. Every facet of our life should be spiritual. Think if you had asked Jesus about his spiritual life. He'd say, all my life's spiritual. Jesus didn't buy into the sacred secular thinking. And for us in Christ, God wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives. So let's talk about his saints at work. Let's look at why our life at work is so important to God. Let's look at the, just the number of hours. If you have a full-time job from the time you're 25 until you're 65, by the time you reach the end of that period of time, you'll have worked 80,000 hours. You will spend 80,000 hours at work. Add into that play and worship, or excuse me, play and, and recreation and rest. That's maybe way more than that, right? If you come to church every Sunday and go to Sunday school, you have spent in that time praying about 3,000 hours in church. And we think of, you know, we get a little bit frustrated because we, we think what we do every day, our work and, and our rest too, how we play and unwind and enjoy God's world is meaningless and doesn't really matter, at least not as much as the church stuff in the grand scheme of heaven and hell and eternal life because it's not sacred. So much of life seems mundane flight after flight, 
traffic after traffic, paperwork after paperwork. There's nothing glamorous about it. We don't feel like we're changing the world. We're changing diapers. We're answering emails. We're tweaking an Excel spreadsheet, fixing cars, stringing wires, making money that inflation is making less valuable every day. We get a little bit ecclesiastical, meaning, where everything is meaningless. Or maybe we feel guilty. Our job doesn't seem sacred, but we really enjoy it, and we're proud of what we do. So today, let's dig into this a little bit. Today and in coming weeks, um, we're gonna talk about that 80,000 hours. It's very important to God because it's all part of his plan and it plays out in both creation and eternity. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew phrase for, for heavens and earth is from top to bottom. He created everything. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The earth was without form and void. That's the, the poetry, that's a Hebrew poetry. The word is tohu, tohu wabohu. I like saying that. It's barren and uninhabited is what it means. It's barren and uninhabited. So God works for six days, forming the earth, filling it with life, and then he sits back and rests and enjoys the fruit of his labor. And like I said, we'll have more of this on coming weeks. And then in verse 31, it says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and then the sixth day. God knows the satisfaction that comes from when you work at something you're good at, and you do what you do, uh, and, you, and you love it. When you look at how creation story plays out in Genesis, you see metaphor after metaphor of who God is and what he's like. He's an artist, he's a designer, he's creative, he's an ecologist, he's a zoologist, he's a horticulturist, he's a musician, he's a poet, he's a king, he's a shepherd. Above all, he's a worker. We don't know exactly when Genesis was written, but there are other creation stories of similar time frame, similar eras. One is from Babylonian uh, doctrine. It's called the Enuma Elish. In the, this doctrine, the premise is that the gods are tired. They complain to their king, Marduk, and he comes up with a scheme to farm out the lower god work to humans, to create humans to handle the, the, lower, farm, the lower god work. He said, uh, the quote is, I will establish a savage... Man shall be his name. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. There were other similar myths of the time, but you get the gist. Humanity is created to do the work which is beneath the gods as cheap slave labor. The God of Genesis doesn't hate work. He really enjoys it. He doesn't create humanity to offload all his work. God himself works to create a world for humanity for us to enjoy his presence we are his co-creators, his partners. Later in Genesis, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does it really mean to be created in the image of God? If you look at um, the Hebrew word for image, it is Salem. Salem is a statue or an idol. It's a visible representation of an invisible being. 
If you think about other gods, Buddha, Zeus, etc., there were statues to lems in their temples to show what God was like, what that God was like. We are put on this earth because the universe is God's temple as his salems, to show the world what God is like. We are the creator's representation to creation. But wait, there's more than that. All over the ancient Near East was used the term salem, Elohim. It means image of God. But this was reserved for kings. Only kings were called salem, Elohim. Pharaoh was called Ammon, which is the Egyptian word for um, Salem. He was called Amon Ray, and Ray is the image of the sun god. He's in the image of the sun god. That was what Pharaoh is. And the kings had access to, to God that no one else could hope for. And the king's job was to mediate God's blessing to the kingdom. But the implication of what the ancient world thought is clear. If the king is God's representative, then we are not. Remember my sermon on the ascension, and if that's the case, if, if the king is, is, has access and is the representation, and we're not, then Marduk was right. We're just servants to help their job, make their job easier. But if you remember my sermon on the ascension and kids from Lakeside Camp, what we said about our identity in Christ. Last year at Lakeside, we looked at, we dove into the six days of creation. And then this year, our Lakeside theme was, was sons and daughters of the king, our identity in Christ. We looked at biblical truths that, that we are um, adopted. Ephesians 1.5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. We also looked at we're sons and daughters of the king, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're also priests and priestesses. We looked at work and keep, mediate blessings. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Toward the end of the week, we looked at that we're saints. We're called saints. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what the hope is to which you are called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. These are all saying the same thing. It's all about being created in his image. Saints, sons and daughters, kings, priests, priestesses. This makes the teaching of Genesis earth-shattering. All human beings are made in the image of God. We are the kings and queens. The whole earth is our kingdom. Right after Genesis says how we are created, it says this, so they may rule. Image and rule are two big words about our origin and our purpose, right? The rule in Hebrew is rada. It means reign or have dominion. It's king talk. A Hebrew scholar said, we are to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. From the beginning, God has been looking for partners, not puppets, not robots, not the little chubby cherubs you see in precious moments, but partners, representatives, ambassadors. Think about this. God could have kept cranking us out from the dust like he did Adam, right? Um, I, I picture the orcs on uh, the, um, the Lord of the Rings, you know, they just crank, keep cranking them out of the dirt, right, or of the mud, um, he could have done that, but instead he chose to work through marriage and family. He could have made food, manna, and quail fall from the sky, 
but he said that he made the farmer. How many have ever heard Paul Harvey's God Made the Farmer? Um, that always gets me choked, choked up when I hear that. But he gave us agriculture, the food industry, food producers. He could have put Adam in even a city like the New Jerusalem's gonna be. I'm gonna talk about that in a few minutes. But instead he chose to put him in a garden that, that is that is uninhabited, that is, that is wild and untamed, tobu wahubu, or whatever that word is. But instead, he did that. Um, and, he, and he let him try to start civilization from scratch. Why would he do that? He knew the risks. He knew who he was dealing with, right? He knew what was gonna happen. Why look for partners if you're omnipotent? Psalm 136, 25 says, he who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. His... He gives, still gives food to all flesh, but he chooses to do it a different way. He uses the farmer, the truck driver, the cook, the grocer, the server. Martin Luther says, and this is a little dated, but listen to it. God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. God provides through the vocations of people. He is milking the cow through the vocation of the milkmaid. Also remember, there were many biblical people with secular jobs. Joseph was in politics. Daniel was a student. Boaz was a businessman, landowner, and farmer. Nehemiah was a city planner. Lydia is a designer. Jesus is a carpenter. So back to creation and our role. He told Adam to fill the earth and subdue it. The Hebrew word for subdue is kabosh. That's where we get put the kabosh on it. It can mean to enslave or abuse. It can mean that. But it also can mean to bring order out of chaos. It can mean harmony out of discord or tame the wild. Rule, tame, capture, that's all king and queen stuff, right? Throughout biblical history, we see that the good kings and bad kings can do. Some start good and end bad. Some start bad and end good. And it's the same now. Under good kings and queens, kingdoms, civilizations, nations, companies, churches, even families thrive. They grow, they expand. They spread God's blessings to the world under bad kings and queens. Remember the Lion King when Mufasa was killed and, and Simba hadn't taken over yet, how the kingdom all got depleted and stuff? That's what happens to an environment under a bad king. Quote Hebrew scripture, you quote Lion King, it all comes out in the end if we do it right. All right, evil tyrant, but when evil tyrants, there's evil tyrants, we see this all over the world today. They dehumanize, they oppress, they bring injustice. Resources get depleted. This all may look like an accident at times. It may look like it's out of control. And really, sometimes it looks like a reckless, unnecessary risk. But humans, saints, priests, partners, kings and queens, you're God's plan A, and there's no plan B. It's why Jesus came as a human. God hasn't given up on plan A it was to, as it was to be carried out by Adam. Look how Paul puts it in perspective. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says this, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-living spirit. Then in Romans 5 it says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, the death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those 
whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type, and some versions say prototype, of the one who is to come. It means Adam was the first human. He was entrusted with ruling the world, but he's just a signpost pointing toward the last Adam, the one human being who will rule the world forever, Jesus Christ. This makes Paul's next statement even more meaningful in verse 15. He says, for many died through one man's trespass, much more, more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Most of us accept that in Adam we all die, but in Christ we all live, praise God. But this takes it to a whole nother level. Not only do we live, but we reign in life. Reigning is a king thing. Reigning is what we were created to do until Adam messed it up. But we now understand that it was always God's plan for man to rule over the world. As we've said before and in previous sermons, Adam had first shot at this and failed. There was Adam and then his family and then Abraham and his family and the same deal. First and second kings, each new king comes to power, gets your hopes up, maybe he's the one to fix it all, then your hopes are dashed. By the end of the Old Testament, you're thinking, how is God gonna fix all this? Not just them, I fail, you fail, our modern day kings fail. But where Adam, Abraham, and all the kings, and you and I fail, Jesus does not. He is, does what Adam was supposed to do and failed. What Israel failed at miserably, and we are supposed to do and cannot without him. If you remember when we talked about the ascension, he is enthroned as king and kings and lord of lords, the ruler of the kings, the saints, and the priests. Even the closing of the gospel about the ascension about him being taken up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God is more about his presence here and his influence here than it is about his absence. What's he doing at God's right hand? He's ruling over the earth. What does he do with this rule? He shares it with us. Why? Because from the time of creation, he has been looking for partners, partners gifted to rule with him in eternity. This is what you're made for. Okay, now to get to the main point of the message. I mean, all this king and queen stuff would be cool if we were in Eden or the New Jerusalem, but we're in Harrisonville. We're in a fallen world where work is under the curse. You may be saying, I don't feel like a king. I feel like a farmer. I feel like an automobile technician. I work for a woke company and have to adhere to their values to keep my job. I work among rough-talking non-Christians. I have a friend that's a pastor. He's a pastor of a small church, so he has to hold a job outside of that. And for years, he worked concrete. And the rest of the concrete crew knew he was a pastor, and they would hang pornography in his truck while he was out doing stuff, you know, just to, 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 to bug him. You know, that's an environment. How do, you, how do you see your job as a blessing with those things going on? I'm a cashier. I'm not a queen. I'm a waitress. I'm a full-time mom, homeschool teacher, public school teacher, student athlete, musician. Heck, you might even be a pastor. What does all this mean to us? A lot. Your, your work is a core part of your humanness. You are made in the image of a working God and your, and your work has implications in creation and in eternity. God is king over the world. You are a king or a king, royalty, created to rule with him. You're supposed to gather up creation's praise and somehow pushing it back to God himself. As a priest, if you remember from when we talked about the ascension, that's what we're supposed to do. There's a whole list of psalms that are called creation psalms. They're taking creation and giving it a voice to, the, to bring it to praises to God. 
where we get a lot of our hymns. Mountains down, bow down, and say, I'll sing them, but I won't. And so if you go to Psalm 104, it puts words to this whole concept for you. And I don't have time to read it right now. But if you want some inspiration about how we're supposed to take creation, God's miracles, and bring it back to him as praises through what we do, Psalm 104 is the place to go. When you go to work tomorrow, you're not just earning a paycheck, not just fixing water lines or bulldozing the earth, growing crops and praying for rain. Prayers get answered sometimes. Learning chemistry, raising kids, helping with women's Bible study or serving at the food pantry. You're being a human. You're ruling over the earth. God looked at his work and said it is very good. We need to do that too. Your work is not a curse. It is under the curse, but we'll talk about that later. Your work is a blessing. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. Blessing, as mentioned in Genesis, is not a small world. It's a very big deal. It's a gift from the creator to generate life, fertility, well-being. And what, God's blessing over, what is God's blessing over humans? Work. He gave us his work to do here. You have so much potential. You're kings and queens. You can use it for good or evil. You were made to be good, to be a Salem, to mimic what God is to the world. So maybe I gave you something to think about. Maybe accept that we're kings and queens, but so what? What does ruling look like in my world? You know, we read in Genesis already in 127 um, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. But then I breezed over the next part because I didn't want to get caught bogged down in the theology of having babies. But that's only part of what God's calling for here. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is not a baby-making mandate. However, having godly children is a major part of it. It's a cultural mandate. It's a command to make culture. Adam and Eve were commanded to make culture, and so are we. Our job title, no matter what we do, is image of God. Therefore, your job description is make culture, the cultural mandate. In Adam and Eve's case, they were to take their struggling family and make it into something more, a society. Sure, you make babies, then you make churches, community centers, schools, social services, governments, countries, and fill the earth. Take creation, trees, rivers, resources, minerals, sun, rain, and do something with it and bring it to praises to God. Psalm 8, 3 through 8 says this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, and also beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. See, there are really two creation stories in Genesis, the heaven and the earth, and then uh, and us being created, and then the garden. Eden in Hebrew means delight. But remember, it was untamed. Adam is made from the ground. That's where his name comes from. The ground is called Adama, Adama which means in, so Adam is from the ground, from the earth. So he has a partnership with the earth in this garden that God created. Then the Lord planted a garden in the east in Eden. 
And in verse 15 it says, the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep and take care of it. Remember, work and keep is priest work, right? It's what kings and queens do. Work, the word is abba, abad, is the Hebrew word for work, um, also called abodah. Uh, Jeremy's gonna get into that more in a future sermon. This is one of the times I'm stepping on his toes a little bit. But abodah means service and worship. It means work. It can also mean service and worship. And all of life is worship, is what this is saying, including our work. And there's more on this in coming weeks. But for now, work towards what? And that's the next word is keep. Keep can mean take care also. The Hebrew, the second word up there is shamar, which, is, which means to take care. It can mean to protect and guard and police and stand up for creation, so that's important. If you're looking at that um, protect, guard, and police, uh, jobs that, that require that, right, that, that call on us to do that, where that's your gift, but it also means to cultivate or draw out potential, you hear that? Cultivate or grow out potential. So between when God planted the garden and when he put man in it is this. And he told them to be fruitful and work and take care. There is this Genesis, um, there's this little short line, it's not up there, Genesis 2, 9 through 14, where he describes all the natural resources that are in Eden. He goes through a description. There's four rivers. There's gold. There's bedillium, which is like frankincense, which is a precious crops that grow, or precious plants that grow. There's onyx stone, and there's precious minerals. So he goes through all the natural resources of Eden. And the point is this. Eden and our world today are made up of raw materials, pent-up potential. Everything you need to make a civilization is here. It's what you're called to do, is to cultivate it, to draw it out by doing the work God created you to do as a partner with him. Tim Keller says this. He said, our work is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. It's a rhythm you can find in all sorts of work. Farmers take seeds and soil and transform it into food. Cattlemen take livestock, pasture, roughage and transform it into beef and meat. Builders take trees and rocks and transform it into homes. I have a brother, Dan, who's just like me, except he doesn't talk much and he's not hyper and he's um, quiet and patient. Other than that, we're, and he doesn't look much like me. Other than that, we're twins, um, clones. But, but he has this gift and it's not part of his um, vocation, but it's avocation. He can take a stick of firewood and, and put it on a lathe and turn it into this beautiful bowl. You know, and he, and he, he drives a Ford Escape and every time he leaves my place, he's, he lives 18 hours away, and he, he puts a half ton of firewood in the Ford Escape and takes it back with him. I don't know how he does it, but, but these things become bowls, and, and uh, I don't know if Judy's here, but she has some of them, I think. Um, people that knew my mom probably ended up getting some of those. Um, but that's a, that's a gift, right? He transforms the raw material into something of delight. Uh, Allison worked for a guy for several, 20, several a couple decades that um, retired, and he's a veterinarian, very talented veterinarian. He built and sold many practices and, and did really well. But his, his sideline, or whatever you call it, was that he had a love for Estes Park. And he would go out there and he'd buy a, a house, just a house, and he would transform it into a place of delight. He never intended to live there, and he was a visionary. I never saw written plans but they would be out there shaving lodge poles and, and make it. And he said, this needs a view out this way. And all of a sudden, it would just become this place of delight, worth a lot more money, but also somebody's dream home and not his. He was doing it for somebody else. He was using his gifts. Um, think about tailors. They take fabric and make clothes. 
musicians take notes and melodies into songs of praise to bring the psalms to life. Doctors, nurses, dentists use knowledge and training and medicine and tools to bring healing. A coach can take individual players with individual personalities, individual skills, and build them and transform them into a team. Police, military, first responders, border patrol, um, they use their training and the laws and their, their abilities to make the world a safer place and make people's lives better. My son Luke is gifted with horses. He can take a horse that, that nobody wants and make it into a, because a, 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 we don't need them here, you know, that I know of, um, to make it into a creature of delight for somebody else by training it and using his skills to, to, to transform it. See, we are to be transformers. The word culture comes from cultivate. It's rearranging the stuff of planet Earth into a place of delight, transforming it. How this all ends is this. At the end of the Bible, John prophesies about the future. When Jesus returns, he writes in the language of Eden. He talks about the tree of life, the river, the kings and queens reigning, us reigning forever. But the curse is gone. We will reign forever and ever as kings and queens, as the Revelation says. But notice, something is different. It's not an uncivilized garden anymore. It's a garden city. It's a garden-like city. By the way, does it bother any of you that the new Jerusalem is described as a city? What we know as a city may not seem positive to you. To, to seem positive to you. It doesn't to me. I've been to L.A., New York City, and Amsterdam. What bothers us most about cities, think about this, is overcrowding, homelessness, Pollution, litter, graffiti, noise, smells. You know, Alice and I had a, a, a pleasure a few years ago to go to Puerto, Puerto Vallarta. I can never say it right. Puerto Vallarta. I'm not fluent in Spanish. I'm functional in Mexican, so however it comes out. Um, and, and we went there, and we stayed. Usually we go places, we stay all-inclusive or something if we go somewhere like that. This time we went with a group that really wanted to stay in this villa, and this villa was built into the, the bluffs over the, the ocean on, on, in Puerto Vallarta, and in that place. And we w went there, and when you drove up to it, for, it was designed by a European guy. I can't remember if he was French or Italian. But he built this place, and when you drive up to it from the street view, it looks like a house sitting there. And you go in, and it's a nice house, but you go in, and then it, it winds down along the bluff, and it's built into the bluffs naturally. It's like when God put that crag in the rock, he meant for there to be a nice room there, and they, they put the room in, and, you, and it has eight bedrooms, and, and you can be in a bedroom, and we were with several other couples, and you might not see them. You know, they might be just a few feet away from you, but they, they go around the other part of the, the thing, and it, it's, it's all very natural, and because the weather's pretty temperate there, they, they leave a lot of it open, that's what, the, that's what our city's going to be like. It's going to have walls, I think, because, I mean, they're described in, 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 a Paul, uh, in John's Revelation. It's going to have walls. It's going to have uh, gates and streets and houses, but it's not going to have any of those bad things, right? It's not going to have bad smells. It's not going to have noise pollution. The New Jerusalem, um, there'll be food to drink and choice meats, choices of Quality grade of beef, not tofu, right, Lath? Yeah, it's, there's going to be choice meats and music and culture. Why? Why, why would he do this? Why, why can't we go back to the garden where we're naked and unashamed, right? Why can't we go back to that? I think it's because this, and I think it's clear in the Scripture. The garden was not supposed to stay a garden, but it was 
It was supposed to be transformed into a garden-like city. And God has been trying since the beginning. They're making ways for, for us to do that. So what are we supposed to do with this now? How are we supposed to take part in this transformation? I mean, what do we, I mean if you accept what I've taught so far, how can we start on this? 1 Corinthians 3.5 says this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We're back to partners. When you go back to work tomorrow, remember, you're not just putting parts on F-150s. You're taking the human project forward. You're not just a mom getting kids off to school. You're living up to God's call to be fruitful and multiply. You are not just a farmer or building houses or businesses or fixing pipes or stringing wires. You're cultivating the earth, drawing out its potential and reshaping it into an environment for people to live and work as God intended, a place of delight. You're not just a student, an engineer, a chef with a new recipe, a waitress, a car hop at Sonic. You're a modern day Adam and Eve. Your job is to take all the raw materials you have available to work it and take care of it, to rule and subdue it, to explore and take the creation project forward as an act of worship to the God who made you. This sounds great, I hope. But when it comes to what you do next, it may be a little fuzzy right now. Part of this is when I give a message or sharing with somebody, if I stay sufficiently vague, it's hard to argue with me, right? I can just say, well, that's not what I meant. <laughs> but the principle, the principle I'm gonna share with you right now is too important to gloss over. It applies to your workplace, but it can also apply to school, marriage, government, and church. How do we keep this in focus in a fallen world where our work is cursed, right? But remember this, Jesus did. He kept it in perspective. He lived in a fallen world, having accepted, and he had accepted the limitations of being human. And he said at the end, toward the end, he completed what God sent him to do. In John 17, four, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Paul kept it in perspective too. 2 Timothy 4, seven says, I have fought the good fight and I've finished the race. How did they do it? How did they stay focused? Well, first, they stay compliant to, the earth, compliant to the earthly rulers and commanded us to do so. Our bosses, parents, and those in authority. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have been given to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is your witness, right? Is to, to follow with joy and not groaning what you're called to do by your earthly leaders. There's all kinds of verses about, and they're mostly in the context of slaves and masters, which is a situation that was different then, but it, it, we apply those to bosses and, and employees right nowadays. And it says, work is work unto the Lord, it's not unto men, is one of them, and there's many more. Titus 3.1 says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obedient, to be ready for every good work. 
That is until what the earthly authorities ask of us flies in the face of what God's command. Act 5.29, when Peter and the apostles were standing before the council, they said we must obey God rather than men, right? So there's, you draw a line there. So obedience to the earthly leaders is a big deal, but obedience to God is everything. And this is the secret to it all right here. John 7, 17, this is Jesus speaking. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. In other words, if you seek to be obedient, you will know what's right and what's wrong. If a person wants scientific knowledge, they use intellect and study. But if he desires knowledge and insight into the teachings of Jesus Christ, he can only obtain it through obedience. All the reading in the world won't help you if you're not being obedient. If spiritual things seem dark and hidden to me, then I can be sure there's a point of disobedience somewhere in my life. We never hear a word from God without instantly being put to the test in that area of our life. We disobey and then wonder why we're not growing spiritually. Jesus said, and this is for an instance, Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift, Matthew 5, 23 through 24. He's saying, don't say another word to me. First be obedient by making things right. The teaching of Jesus hits us right where we live. Is there an area of work where you don't talk to God about you treat it as if it doesn't matter to him? Maybe you're ashamed to, to bring it before him as if he doesn't know about it already? Make sure there's not something about the issue where you're refusing to be obedient. God will not reveal more about himself to you until you're obedient in what you know right now. I just surprised myself with that one. I'm gonna say it again. God will not reveal more about himself to you until you're obedient in what you know about him right now then this all applies as well. You are to be, be obedient to people, as we said, but not dependent on them. If you're dependent on people for direction in life, for approval, self-worth, or identity, you're gonna be disappointed and hurt. Trust me. The problem with people is we're only human. John 2, that's quoting Calvin and Hobbes, actually. Uh, John 2, 24. But Jesus, uh, on his part, did not trust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what we were capable of in him and without him. Jesus sees people as they really are, and we can too through God's eyes. The God-given revelation brings us to the point where we see people as they really are, but as free of criticism, cynicism, or frustrated anger. Looking at through people through God's eyes means having no more misconceptions, false impressions, or false judgments. It means not looking to bosses, coworkers, employees, or spouses for your self-worth. Helped our relationship a lot when Allison realized I wasn't God. She's a smart kid, it didn't take her long. <laughs> Many other things in life that inflict the greatest injury, grief, or pain come from not seeing each other as God sees us, but through some lens of our own or the misguided ideas of one another. According to our thinking, you know, according to our thinking, everything's either beautiful or good evil or malicious, honorable or cowardly. It's getting where we can't even have a discussion about differing ideas anymore. If we love someone but do not love God, we demand total perfection and righteousness from that person. And when we do not get it, we become cruel and vindictive and sad. 
We're demanding of human beings something which he or she cannot possibly give. There's only one being who can completely satisfy the absolute depth of the hurting human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord is so obviously uncompromising with regard to every human relationship because he knows that every relationship that is not based on faithfulness to himself will end in disaster. Our Lord trusted no one and never placed his faith in people, yet he was never suspicious or bitter of anyone. Our Lord's confidence in God and what God's grace could do for anyone was so perfect that he never despaired, never giving up hope on any one person. So, if we completely comply with our, if we comply with our earthly leaders, stay completely obedient to the God that created us, to partner with him in mediating his blessings through the creation and the gifts he has given us, we're on our way to becoming saints at work. I'd like to call up the worship team as we close in prayer.